Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I'm the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to today's show. Um, a great guest lined up, Stefan Levera. I'm sure many of you have already listened to many of his podcasts. Um, he's been in the space uh, a few years now and put together a great podcast. I, um, I couldn't believe it when he got straight back to me on, uh, on Telegram and um, was more than happy to come on the show and, and talk about um, well, Austrian economics, what's going on in Australia right now, um, and loads of other stuff. I hope you enjoy the show. It's, um, it was a great privilege to, uh, to do this with Stefan. Um, another quick shout out for, uh, for Real Vision. Uh, go to uh, realvision.com, $1. We'll unlock um, all their content for 30 days. And uh, if you'd like to learn more about myself and my book, you can um, find my book at my personal uh, website, which is uh, princesoffthegrid.weebly.com. Take care, guys, and uh, enjoy the show. Okay, guys, welcome to today's show and uh, special guest, Stefan Levera, the, uh, the pod father himself. He, he, shucks, he shrugs it off, but um, he's, uh, yeah, one of the, well, well-known original Bitcoin podcasters. And uh, Stefan, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for uh, having me on your show, Daniel. Well, as, um, as it's become a custom, I have a, a couple of young people either side of me now, and they're going to kick off with the uh, the questioning. So um, we'll start with Samuel and then uh, and then Lauren's question. Of course. Why is Bitcoin so important to you? Oh, well, Bitcoin is very important to me because I think it changes a lot of society for the better. We're going to use it because it's better money. And fundamentally, it helps undo some of the damage that we see from the world with fiat money and inflation. Thank you. Hopefully and that helps. Lauren? That helps. Yeah. <laughs> um, when did you start podcasting? I started my podcast in July 2018, so a little under two years from now. So, yeah, basically I started it because I was, uh, I was dissatisfied with most of the content in the space and I was basically scratching my own itch. I wanted to make something that would just genuinely be highly informative both on the economic side and the technological side of Bitcoin where at the time I felt there was not a very, uh, there wasn't a large quantity, there weren't a lot of um, high quality podcasts and YouTube um, uh, people making this kind of material. So that was why I started it. Okay, thank you. Okay, you guys finished with the questions? I think I got one more. Okay, let's do it. Where do you come from? Originally, I'm from Sri Lanka, but I have grown up here in Sydney, Australia. So I'm an Australian. I'm a citizen of Australia, but uh, my, yeah, my parents are Sri Lankan. I got a uh, friend who... His, his mum is Sri Lanka. Oh, there you go. Yeah, there's a, there's a few of us around there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks, guys, and um, I'll see you later. Yeah. Say goodbye to Stefan. Yeah, bye. Bye. See ya. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for, uh, for answering the questions. Um, 
It's weird, isn't it? Answering a nine-year-old, like you, you probably, I could have asked those questions and, you know, you've got stock answers for adults, but like to, to try and portray what is important about Bitcoin to a nine-year-old is, um, is another challenge for us. Absolutely. And it's an important one. Yeah. And the question then is also how deep into the detail do you go? And obviously for a nine-year-old, there's not the same level of depth that you can go to and they're not going to have the same concepts around like paying a mortgage or paying rent and not understanding some of those deeper kind of society things that obviously we all face when, when you become an adult. Uh, but that's uh, an interesting thing as well when you're trying to frame your answer for the listener and you have to, or for that person who's asking, you have to think of where are they coming from and how can I relate it to them, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How do you explain tax to a nine-year-old? Um, I, I think a best, the best analogy I ever heard was like, um, take a bite of their ice cream before they... Before they yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like that, um, isn't that like the Ron Swanson? Um, I think there's like, you know, that Ron Swanson character from Parks and Recreation and apparently he teaches the child something like, this is what taxation is and like he takes the kid's like sandwich and just like takes a huge bite out of it and gives it back to the kid. Same thing. Right, there you go. Um, now... Another really difficult topic is the, the topic of um, Austrian economics, which I know you are very well versed in. And I wanted to bring this up with you today because I was having um, Zoom pub beers with some mates last, uh, last Friday night. Uh, instead of the actual pub, we now just do it on Zoom calls. And, you know, they're getting, they're getting into the rabbit hole and it's good to see. Um, but then they're like, okay, Dan, you know, can you just sum up? Well, one of them was like, <laughs> so... If, if economics works like that in Austria, why doesn't it work like that in the rest of the world? And the, <laughs> and the, other, question, and the other question was, if you could sum up Austrian economics in, in like under one sentence, what would you say? And, and so this is, this is an important topic because these are, these are adults asking this now. And, um, you know, one of them had an economics degree. And this is a big miss. So can you help us um, fill in the holes of, one, why is... Austria not actually running on an Austrian economic model and try and give us a real nice overview of what Austrian economics is. <laughs> right. So to the first question, why is it not Austria? Um, so it was actually a pejorative term at the time. So I think it was a term that was used to sort of distinguish between German economists. So they were trying to say, oh, he's not a German economist. He's one of those Austrian school People. That was it was like a put down term, and um, because many of the early practitioners of the school came from Austria, right? So Karl Menger, Eugen von Bauwerk, von Bauwerk, and Ludwig von Mises, obviously they all came from Austria, and so they are the leaders. They're considered the leaders in the school of thought. Um, and so to the second question, which is around you know, what is Austrian economics in a question in one sentence, I. I don't know if I could I give. I, I don't know if I could really um, give a good answer, but I guess off the top of my head, I would say something like it's the study of individual choice and action applied to, uh, you know, uh, to of human action applied to uh, over scarce, you know, resources applied to human ends. Right? It's 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 it. 
if 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 I were if I, that's kind of more like the dictionary way of explaining it, right? But if I were to think of like if you know like in the pub test, right, or just talking to someone in a pub, it would just be more like think of it like this is how people act in a bottom up way. It's a spontaneous order way, right? It's there's no king of the world or no government of the world. You know, it's it's more like the government, the countries of the world exist in this kind of anarchy against each other, right? And it's a similar kind of way. It's kind of explaining and trying to pierce through and understand in a deductive way. So I guess that's probably the other quintessential thing about the Austrian economics is is its method of inquiry. It's known as praxeology. It's it's like it can be a good parallel as something like deductive reasoning instead of inductive reasoning. So the idea is you start from certain premises right? Man acts purposefully. And then you deduce things logically from those premises. And so that is why in some sense can look like it's a tautological thing, right? Like, aren't you just saying like a square has four sides kind of thing? It's no, but there's, there's actually certain things that you can understand about the world and that we can pull together. And this is Hunter and Hopper makes this point in his book, Economic, uh, sorry, uh, economic science and the Austrian method. I've forgotten the exact. Uh, um, I've forgotten the exact uh, name of the book. Um, but basically, he's spelling out Austrian methodology, and so he's talking about this concept known as synthetic a priori truths. Right. So he's saying a priori means we know this before. You know, uh, we can know this in advance, and it's not just kind of like an interpretation thing. It's more like, no, no, this is like an economic law. We can expect this to apply. It's like, and once you understand these different concepts and you can sort of layer them together, right? When you're thinking about, okay, the marginal, like what's the concept of on the margin, right? Like why, if I have $10 and I might spend the 10th dollar on whatever, a, a, a bottle of water and that that next dollar might might go on something else. And it's it's kind of like that. So I guess kind of bringing it back to how would I, expl- I would explain it again to someone in a pub, I would sort of explain it more like it tends to be the sc- like the, as a school of thought, Austrian economists tend to favor the free market. They tend to favor not having government intervention. And so that's kind of at a high level what it means or what it is. It, you proved my point. It's almost impossible to explain. And like, it's just, yeah. I, I think I said something along the lines of free markets and human action and just like moved on and dodged the question because I knew <laughs> it was not. <laughs> it takes a lot of reading and research. And I mean, for me, I've been studying it for you know, a long time. I, I don't even, I don't consider myself a master. I don't even really consider myself an, like an Austrian economist. I just consider myself a student of it. And I'm able to ask good questions when I'm interviewing uh, an Austrian economist, but I, I myself, I don't consider myself like some expert at being able to explain it. Uh, but uh, I guess within the Bitcoin world, I'm sort of known as like an Austrian economics guy because obviously I talk about it on the podcast, but I, I wouldn't say uh, like I, I'm really great at teaching it myself, right? Because I guess there's a difference between, you know, sort of being able to like knowing how to ask good questions about it to being able to actually explain it for yourself. You know, there's a difference between being a good podcast host and being a good podcast guest, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, what, what was your background then? What did, did you, what, what led you into, into this world? Austrian economics? Yeah. Or into Bitcoin? Into Austrian economics, um, I 
basically I was online as a kid and reading random forums and random IRC channels. And then I was in this Australian politics channel at the time. I remember I was 14 years old and this guy kept linking to Mises Daily articles. And so that was my intro point into Austrian economics because over time, at the start, I thought, oh, that's crazy stuff. Like, how could you have like ev literally everything done by the free market? How would that work? And wouldn't gangs take over and wouldn't warlords take over and so on, right? That was, that was what I used to think when I was, you know, 14, 15. And then over time, I, I became a libertarian and then I came, I went more into that school of thought. And yeah, so essentially by the time I got to university, then Basically, by that point, I was already like really deeply into reading a lot of these different Austrian economics books and so on. Obviously, started with the more basic stuff. Like as a kid, I would just read the more basic, you know, just kind of these 700, 800 word articles and so on, and then progress up to reading the proper books on it. And so that was my exposure to that. And then in terms of Bitcoin stuff, well, that was more like reading some of the earlier libertarian Bitcoin people reading their articles was what got me in. So funnily enough, it was an Eric Voorhees article in late 2012 that made me have my aha moment about Bitcoin. So that for me was a big turning point for me because then up until that point, I had sort of heard of Bitcoin vaguely and just sort of saw random news articles, but never actually clicked in and read about it. I just thought, oh, whatever, just some random thing like Fortnite dollars or, you know, whatever the online money, those kind of, those kinds of like virtual game money. Uh, and then it was reading the Voorhees piece that actually made me turn around and realize, whoa, actually this is like, this can challenge central banks. And obviously as a long time uh, fan of Austrian economics, I was very much interested in that idea of challenging central banks and bailouts and fiat money and all of this stuff. And when, when like the, the financial crisis hit, what, what um, period of life were you in then? So I was basically just finishing up with university. So I was still studying, but I was still a bit anxious, obviously, because at that time mm. it was like, whoa, I don't know if I'll be able to get a job coming out of this. Who knows? You know, because I'd gone through university doing commerce degree, studying accounting and finance and thinking, oh, you know, I wanted to, you know, I'd want to, obviously, because most kids at that age, they're thinking, well, yeah, I want to, I want to land a job at one of these big companies. And now my chances are going to be way, way tougher. To, it's going to be way harder to get that kind of job. Um, so, yeah. And so I basically, after I finished university, I landed a job at Deloitte and then I was doing internal audit. Um, so one of the big four accounting or big four professional services firms. And so that's where I got my start in terms of the business world. And so for most of my normal career, I was doing internal audit and sort of consulting out to different companies as part of the, the firm. And then later actually working inside banks, doing internal audit within the bank divisions. Wow, man. And now you're on the other side of the fence. That's, uh... <laughs> That's right. But my, my rejoinder always was, I mean, people did say, yeah, it's quite ironic that you're like so into Bitcoin and you work in a bank and stuff back then, not now. Um, but for me, for me, I don't even see a logical inconsistency, right? Like for me, it's kind of like, well, there's two parts to it. One part is obviously I view Bitcoin as more of a challenge to central banks than to like actual just commercial banking. And the other part is, and maybe some of the rhetoric you might've seen from, you know, one of my friends, Pierre Richard, which you might've seen as well. He, he's, he's almost playing this rhetoric of don't hate the player, hate the game. So he, you know, he's sort of saying, well, hang on, why, why are you blaming all these 
companies for asking for bailouts when that's what the system rewards? Why are, they, why are you blaming these companies for keeping a low cash balance when that's what the system pushes them into? And so on that logic, it's the same kind of idea, right? So if you understand, if you're an Austrian or you're a fan of Austrian economics and you understand the Cantillon effect, which means those who are closest to the monetary spigot get the benefit at the disadvantage of those who get it later, you want to place yourself, obviously, towards the early part of that. And so who are the beneficiaries of this inflationary monetary system? The people who get the loans. That's, that includes the government, primarily. That also includes things like big property companies who get these loans. And obviously, the financial sector. If you work in the bank, you will tend to have a higher salary than people who are not so close to the monetary spigot. So if you understand that, and you have a skill that can be put to use in one of those industries, then it's kind of in your interest. You're playing, you know, again, don't hate the player, hate the game. You're just playing the game as it is. And so that's kind of the other angle of that. Um, so, but at the same time, though, it can be, you know, when you're into Bitcoin, it can be sort of conflicting because you obviously see the injustice of the system and you want there to be a better system and you want there to be something better. And that is what we, you know, you and I, and obviously our listeners today that will agree, mostly agree with that idea that there is so much injustice in the current system. And we see Bitcoin as the corrective. Bitcoin is one of the ways in which people can really opt out in, in their own sovereign way. And so that is, uh, fundamentally what sort of pushed me towards uh, doing more in terms of starting a podcast and trying to talk more about Bitcoin as opposed to just kind of quietly stacking my stats. Although I don't have a problem with that either. That approach is also totally fine, right? Like for some people, here's the other thing. Just because you're into Bitcoin doesn't mean you have to work, quote unquote, in Bitcoin, right? It's for many people, it is totally the best thing for them to do is just keep working in their fiat job and just stack sats. That's it. Um, because fundamentally, no, like if you know and understand that Bitcoin is better money, then unless you have a skill set that is uniquely targeted and better, like at directly working within Bitcoin, then your skill set may not necessarily align with that, right? Like if you are a C++ developer, or if you are a Rust developer, then yeah, sure, there's probably, you know, there's obviously room for you in that uh, capacity. But even then, it's not necessarily an easy thing, right? It's not just any C++ developer who can do it, right? And I mean, that said, there are a lot of, um, you know, Bitcoin companies as well that you could work in as well. But um, that, yeah, it, it just depends what, like, what kind of skill set you have and what kind of pay you could get for it and how much you're willing to trade that off in terms of maybe if you take a slight pay cut to work in Bitcoin, colloquially, so to speak, um, what's what's that trade-off decision that you make? Yeah, it's an interesting point. And I do see, I, I love that analogy, um, don't play, uh, don't hate the player, hate the game. And thinking about it just now, it's like, um, I think we're making a mistake broadly that Bitcoin is a new player. Whereas Bitcoin's a new game. Yeah, no, that's exactly the analogy. I'm saying I see, I view Bitcoin as a game changer. I view Bitcoin right. as yeah. we view the current fiat game uh, is just inherently unjust. And that is why we're opting out of the fiat game to play this Bitcoin game. 
which we believe is a more fair game because obviously we kind of we know the rules that we're opting into and we can opt out of the fiat game. So that's 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 at least how I would frame it. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's um it's a good good way to explain it because most people just think it's another financial asset that's just landed on the table of things to start trying to learn about, right? Um <laughs> as in yeah, which we know takes a long time. Uh, right. Okay. Let's talk about what's going on in in your home country, um, just so we can get an update of um, of the feel around the world. What's going on in France? We we're still in lockdown here. Have been for five weeks. Not sure um, when that's going to end. Maybe the next few weeks. Don't don't really know. Um, you know, most people view Australia as uh, you know. They're laid-back laid blokes and, um, you know, they got the sunshine and the beach. But um, what's really going on? What's the feel over there? Yeah, so absolutely Australia has that historical larrikin culture and kind of almost that, that rebel outlaw culture. But I think it has degraded a bit in from that because now it has so quickly people's rights have just been completely run roughshod over right they have completely just you know all like basically everyone's freedoms have been completely given up with barely a real justification for it we are still under lockdowns although arguably the lockdowns here are not as harsh as say in the US um it, over here it was more like certain things were banned obviously so large events obviously out the door restaurants are uh, takeout only no cinemas no gyms uh, no, whole bunch of those things. Um, most most schooling is now kind of done from home. Um, now, in terms of actual cases, because Australia is so far away from the rest of the world, and because we're an island, I think Australia and New Zealand have probably been a bit lucky. We've sort of gotten off scot free ish, right? Like we've had about six thousand cases and maybe seventy or eighty deaths, which is basically like a rounding error if you consider the Australian population of 25 million uh, compared to what other countries are having. Uh, although my concern at this point is more something like there's some rhetoric around the Australian media and so on of people who just continually want more, more and more government. So they keep saying, oh, let's go for elimination and stuff. But in my view, that's just kind of very... Because in their view, they're thinking, oh, let's go for elimination, let's have contact tracing and blah, blah, blah. And in my view, that's kind of this very techno-authoritarian view, whereas obviously I'm coming from a more what you might consider a techno-libertarian view, right? Being into Bitcoin and being into libertarianism, where that really jars. And to me, I think that's a very foolish approach, this idea of trying to go for full elimination, because then the entire population will just remain fragile. Right, unless you can like perfectly track every case that comes in and stop it before it spreads, we're just going to be constantly, you know. And then the, I think probably the one of the really, hopefully we don't end up going down this pathway. It may happen. We don't know. Um, we may end up with this weird yo-yo situation, right, where they sort of slightly relax the restrictions a bit and then the cases spike again and then they all have a cry again and then they lock it down again and then we just kind of have this constant yo-yo up and down and that will be extremely destructive to people's livelihoods right because you just can't run a business that way they can't just sort of you can't run a business where oh okay yeah you guys can all go back to business now and then in like a week or two there's all these cases and now they say oh no shut it all down again and it just like it just will not um 
it just can't work. And if you look at the sort of big investment required for some of these businesses, uh, like Virgin Airlines, which is one of the big carriers here, so it's Qantas and Virgin are sort of the big players here in Australia, and Virgin are going into administration now. Um, so you can sort of imagine. I mean, in fairness, with Virgin, they were probably losing money bef even before all this lockdown stuff. But that's even an interesting question as well around do you should the government bail them out if the government like if the government forcefully stops your business it's kind of it's not so clear whether the government should bail you out obviously it's like the first up position would just be like hey no bailouts right two rights don't make two wrongs don't make a right um but the other position is kind of like well at the same time the government also forcibly stopped flights and forcibly stopped you from doing business too so it's so it's it's kind of it's kind of a tough one to call from like a like what is actually correct there. Um, although obviously I have, um, I'm more of a fan of like the Sweden kind of approach. Obviously I think it should have been more like a sort of soft lockdown. We should have, we should treat people like adults basically. Like we should tell them, Hey, look, this is high risk or whatever. Like at the time we, um, it's, you know, these are the risks we believe if you, uh, if you wash your hands more often, you wear masks and you keep some distance when you go out, but we're going to let you decide, right? That would have been much more appropriate. Whereas I believe the Australian government and what's increasingly becoming the Australian Karens of, of the world who are helping the government and snitching out people and so on are kind of pushing this idea that, no, you're all children. Everyone must be treated like a child and the government must decide what is essential and what is not. And if you're caught outside your house without a re quote unquote reasonable excuse that they have delineated, like things like going for grocery shopping and whatever, you're in trouble. We will, you'll, you'll cop a big fine and you might go to jail for it. And it just, it just to me seems incredibly overly blunt and not well targeted enough. What really should have happened is there should have been more effort made to protect the fragile, right? The old and the immunocompromised. It should have been an effort in that way. It should have been an effort to protect the nursing homes and, you know, suburbs where a lot of old people live and things like that. It should have been more targeted towards that as opposed to just bluntly shutting down everything where even young and healthy people, and we know this now, like if you're, you know, under 50 with no pre-existing conditions, it's uh, Dr. Ian Idis from Stanford has spoken about this and he was saying, he did the numbers, right? And he was saying, it's, it's like something equivalent to if you went on, uh, you know, a drive to work. And I, and I think he was saying even like, even if you have like some slight health conditions, it might be like the equivalent of going on a long drive, right? That's the level of risk, like to quantify it for people. But for most people, they just, they've just kind of been scared into submission. And so that as soon as you mention any of this stuff as soon as you mention anything about like hey is is this actually justified shutting down the entire economy they say no do you want to kill grandma you want people to die da, 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 da. and like it just you can't really you, because most people aren't, aren't used to thinking about trade-offs and they're not used to accepting that i'm sorry man but sometimes it's your time to go and we all we all have our time to go and we have to be cognizant of that before just going and just locking people down for a not insignificant part of their lives. I mean, if we end up locked up for 12 months, 18 months, two years, while we're waiting for a vaccine that may never come, that is a significant portion of someone's life that you are just locking them away and saying, no, you've got to stay at home. I, to me, that seems extremely unjust 
And like I could sort maybe if this was like a really, really, really bad virus, I could sort of see an argument, but it's becoming clearer and clearer that this virus it targets older people and people with certain conditions or respiratory conditions, obesity, metabolic disease, right? Um, so from my point of view, it should have been a targeted effort, right? And funny hypothetical that I've been, I've been joking around with some of my friends about this, right? Like I wouldn't actually do this, but hypothetically, imagine fat camps, all right? If I said, hey, mate, looks like your, uh, your BMI is uh, 35, so mandatory fat camp for you. We're going to take all of you people, all the people who are fat, and we're going to put them in fat camp. I'm going to put you on a carnivore diet. I'm going to make you work out three times a week with lift weights. I could probably make the case that that would save more lives for less cost than the interventions that the government is doing now. I could probably save more lives for less cost. And they would, not only that, these people who, whose lives would be saved by the fat camps, right? And so in this fat camp, you're, not, you're banned from eating sugar, no seed oils, right? You just eat meat, basically. They would emerge from the fat camp metabolically more healthy and they would have better quality of life. Whereas now, you might be a diabetic, you might have a shit quality of life and you are continually like going on and on and it's a big drain on, the, on society's uh, socialized healthcare system and yet we don't do that. But in this case, because it's like a sudden killer, whereas heart disease is kind of a, a steady long killer and heart disease is like the number one killer, right? Now, in fairness, everyone's going to die at some point, right? So it's not like all the heart disease deaths would be averted. But you get what I'm, what I'm getting at here, right? Like it's like, and obviously from a rights perspective, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be justified in doing that to people, so I wouldn't. But just it's an interesting hypothetical, right? Like why do we accept these massive lockdowns on everyone when theoretically, if you wanted to save more lives, that the fat camp idea would probably save more lives. It's a good analogy. I love it. And I'm sure you'd be running Austrian economic classes during the downtime at the fat camps and teaching the big... <laughs> That's right. That's right. They'd be uh, being taught about Bitcoin and then they would emerge yeah. like more healthy and then, and then they would emerge not just physically healthier but financially healthier and then they would learn to go and stack and run their bitcoin node and you know it's it's just going to be, be create this uh virtuous cycle daniel yeah exactly we've got a bunch of fat people want to go kayaking and you just want to you know force austrian economics down there down there now. <laughs> <laughs> right let's um on, on like your yo-yo effect that you were talking about like you know um that's that that that's interesting because like this is almost perfect for governments, right? You know, fear. We know that. It's the easiest way to control people is fear. And how addicted are they going to get to that? And you saying, right, let's send everybody back. They could easily, easily shut everything down again in two weeks. Say, oh, another spike in cases, bam. And this has happened in Singapore already, right? Singapore thought they were clear. They thought they were, you know, patting themselves on the back. I was in Singapore. I lived in Singapore through SARS. So I know how they handle that kind of stuff. And they would have been even more ready for this one. So I know that they, and I've still got friends, many friends in Singapore. They were like, yep, we're done. We're through. We were in lockdown. My friends sending me um, pictures on the golf course. I'm like, God damn. Then like four days later, they're all locked in their houses again. Um, now the reason for that is because of the, um, the uh, migrant workers that are all 
banged up in dormitories and passing diseases around, which um, then spilled out onto the streets and everybody started getting reinfected. Now, this is another case study for governments to watch, right, from around the world. It's like, right, we can knock down again if we, if we need to, if we want to, if we fear the people rising up for whatever reason. Yeah, so that comes to this whole question as well around herd immunity, right? So I think the the example that everyone's really pissed off about is Sweden, right? Because they're like, oh my God, Sweden, why didn't you lock down? Da, da, da. I mean, and in fairness, it's not like they did nothing, right? They did ban events above 50 people. They advised people. It was more like a voluntary strategy. And that was why I like that, that approach because it really treats people more like adults as opposed to, you know, treating them like children. And... One point that I saw Anders Techno make was uh, that they might actually hit herd immunity within a month in Sweden, so in Stockholm, rather. Um, so imagine that, right? So while the rest of the world is kind of stuck, fragile, and waiting for a vaccine or whatever, or stuck in this kind of stupid yo-yo cycle, Stockholm, in like a month, can just get back to business. And paradoxically, that, that may actually be safer than... <laughs> like somewhere that locked down because now the herd immunity is kind of what stops it spreading even further because enough people there have already caught it and they were asymptomatic or they were young and healthy and they shook it off. Big deal, right? Now, in fairness, I mean, there, there are some other important questions here because it could be that uh, maybe the reinfection is more common than we think. But I, th I think, you know, at least at the time of recording, you know, from what we know now, it seems like having had it once and shaking it off does give you some immunity, at least for a reasonable amount of time. And we should assume that because that's like normally what happens with this kind of thing as well. We shouldn't assume like a different thing, like this is some crazy Hollywood pandemic movie. No, we should assume like what we've normally seen. And so that is, but again, as soon as you bring up herd immunity, it's like, whoa, no, you want old people to die. Da, 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 and like, Again, it comes up to that question of what was flatten the curve about in the first place? At least as I was sold flatten the curve, I was sold flatten the curve on the basis that, hey, we don't want the hospitals to get overloaded. And guess what? In Sweden, they weren't overloaded. They went and made additional tents and whatever, and they weren't even used. Here in Australia, they um, obviously prepped for this huge surge that never came, right? And now the answer will be, oh, but see, it was the lockdowns that didn't make the surge come, right? But then... You've got to, un you've got to, if, but then again, that's where I would stop like these pro lockdown people and say, well, hold on a second. Have you counted all the costs, right? Because again, it's very easy for the politician to point out the scene, but what, what is the Austrian uh, ec economist talking about? The unseen. They're saying, well, hold on. What about the costs of businesses that are going under and will not return after this, right? Some of them will go under and they won't return. And that's someone's livelihood. That's someone's life savings gone, dust just wasted and so the thing that i try to stress to people is that it should be a commensurate response to the level of risk and we've also got to appreciate that it's not just like when people are thinking the economy they're thinking oh you just care about the stock market or you just care about 0.2 percent of the gdp it's like, no it's actually about humans it's about like there are things are more interconnected than we realize and trying to say oh, I care about plants, but not about the soil and the water and the sunlight. That's, that's kind of like when someone says, I care about lives, but not the economy. It's like, 
how do you how do you think the food gets made? How do you think the masks and the cleaning and the medical supplies get made? We we need these things. And so I think a lot of progressive types have jumped on this bandwagon because it 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 sort of helps them remake society in the ways that they liked it anyway. And so that's why a lot of them sort of jumped on this bandwagon and then it became all about the modeling and it became all about the epidemiology and if you're not an you if you're not like a 20 year epidemiologist you're not allowed to have a point of view on this thing, right? Even though that is only one narrow field of expertise, right? Because that obviously it's an important thing, but what about history? What about economics? What about these other disparate, uh, sorry, these different disciplines that also have something to bear and something to bring on this? Because if you ask an epidemiologist, they'll be like, nope, yeah, we've all got to be locked up for two years while we all wait for the vaccine. But that might be merely from the point of view of minimizing COVID deaths. But what about other deaths? What about starvation? What about suicides from you know bad mental health what about all the you know the family breakdowns that will happen what about all these other elective surgeries that won't happen because all the hospitals have tried to prep for covid you know what about all these other all the, all the people who should go present at the hospital but have not been because they're worried about catching covid in the hospital right so it's like all these effects are so interconnected in a way that no one person can understand or even really it's hard for me to kind of point out oh look at that hidden cost that we averted by not killing the economy how do you do that how do you even explain that to someone because they'll just say no you just want people to die and that's the end of the conversation now thankfully i think the conversation is shifting people are slowly starting to get that idea that well hold on like we actually need someone to make stuff as well. We can't just all sit at home and wait for checks from the government to keep living. That's just not how, that's not a sustainable way of going about this thing. And we can't just keep pushing the debt onto our children and the children after that, like the generations after us, because again, that is just massively unjust, which is coming back to the problems of fiat money, right? Because people just easily uh, go into, like governments and politicians easily just go into debt now and just, basically kick the can down the road. And that is fundamentally the problem we face. And that is why we Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that, that's like so well summed up. And and again, like, yeah, um, it's not the scene, it's the unseen. That's a, another excellent point of uh, Austrian economics looking at this, um, at this case. Right, well, let's talk about um, what you're doing uh, with um, yourself at the moment, Ministry of Nodes. Could you uh, tell people what's going on with that? Yeah, sure. So Ministry of Nodes is... So I started it with my my co-founder Katan Galabdas. He and I were like childhood friends. I've known him from like like half my life basically. And he got into Bitcoin. Uh, I told him about Bitcoin, and we basically got into it around the same time. And we saw it like an opportunity to teach people about the practical components of Bitcoin. Because here's the thing: if you look at a given product or a given software you can often find guides for that thing but you won't necessarily find things about across different uh pieces of products and software right for example how do i use you know uh, a cold card with my own bitcoin node how do i how do i do that how do i do that with electrum how do i run like how do i kind of holistically put it together or if i want to do lightning stuff or if i want to use CoinJoin and privacy how do i how do i do that and so ministry of nodes is our effort to try and cohesively put it together in a way that makes sense for a new coiner or sometimes an intermediate level Bitcoiner. So the stuff on our side is generally not for advanced level Bitcoin people. It's more for like 
beginners and some intermediate level Bitcoin people who want help on how to use a hardware wallet or how to set up a Bitcoin node. And so we offer a video call consulting and we're going to, we write articles and we put up YouTube guides as well on how to, how to do these things, how to put some of these things into practice, right? So some of my stuff on the podcast on, you know, Stefan Levera podcast is more like a, it can be sort of high level or it can be a bit more theoretical uh, in, in the discussion. Uh, whereas some of the stuff on Ministry of Nodes is the idea is it's kind of more like practical. How do you actually do it yourself? So that would be in a nutshell what it is about. And so what we've done is we've run some different workshops. We, we did some in person uh, and then we quickly changed to doing stuff online because we felt like the Sydney market isn't exactly very big for, you know, Bitcoin education, right? Um, so we, we do a lot of online coaching for people. And right now it's basically on a Bitcoin tip us what you, whatever people feel it's worth. So we'll pretty much jump on a call with them and just walk them through things. And then they just tip us at the end. And so we've had a bunch of people actually just come through the door doing it like that. I've had um, some other people who wanted us to kind of give them some guidance, some quasi handholding through the process, because sometimes it can be daunting to walk through this process. And, you know, you might have listened to me on the podcast talking about some concept with someone, but then you're not sure how to do it for yourself. And so then for that, they might uh, want to book in a session with us. And then that's essentially the approach that we have taken. And I think as well, mate, people like um, when they hear you on the on the podcast, they're like, wow, like that, you know, so knowledgeable, must be so busy, uh, must be really hard to get hold of him, must be unreachable, untouchable, um, which is completely not the case because I think you uh, responded to my text within like 38 seconds. So <laughs> <laughs> how, can, how can people find you? And, um, you know, if they are looking for help, you know, in this specific area. Yeah, so ministryofnodes.com.au has um, all the resources there. And then on the, I think there's a web, it's called the webinar page, basically. You go there and you can book in on Calendly or you can email us. Um, or, yeah, I mean, I mean, or if people want to find me, even my, my DMs are open on Twitter and my email as well is there as well. So, um, yeah, I, I do spend a lot of time just kind of fielding random DMs and random uh, questions about how to do things. Um, so I try to try to get back to everyone uh, i don't manage to get back to literally everyone but most most people i managed to get back to and i think in your case it was kind of i happened to already be on telegram and i saw the message and then i was like okay yeah let's do it so yeah well thanks again it's been uh it's been very very cool i've, I've still got more questions um sure. bitcoin ventures what's going on with that that's uh, that's another new thing that you're part of yeah so yeah so bitcoin ventures is this idea if you think back a couple of years ago, there were some of the shitcoin investor funds. Like it was kind of the idea to invest in the ecosystem. And so think of it like Bitcoin Adventures is there to invest in Bitcoin companies that are doing important things or valuable things in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And so part of the idea is that you're sort of, you're able to come into the group if you're an accredited investor, if you're global uh, anywhere around the world, uh, you self-certify as an accredited investor on the AngelList platform, and then you can join the syndicate. And basically, it's you get the right to look at the deals, but it's not an obligation. So you can't just join up and see the deals and decide, okay, I want to come in on this deal. And so the idea is you might be a Bitcoin hodler 
who also wants to in- invest in the ecosystem that strengthens your investment. And so that's always a difficult one, right? Because again, there is always that question of, oh, but what if I just bought more Bitcoin, right? And that that's, again, that's a fair point, right? So again, it's not, um, obviously, this is totally, you know, voluntary, right? It's just if you want to invest in these Bitcoin companies and it might be that you fundamentally are bullish on Bitcoin and you obviously you hold a position of Bitcoin yourself, but you also want to help drive the ecosystem in a certain way, right? So if you believe, you know, for example, that certain companies are building a vision that you like and you want to help create that vision, then that's a good opportunity for you to invest in with us. And so what we might do is negotiate with those companies and say, hey, we would like an allotment. We would like to invest as our syndicate into your company. And then these investors who are our partners uh, can come along for, for, with on the ride with us, right? And they can, I think, they, you know, it's like a minimum of, of, of 1,000 USD if you want to come in on the deal with us. But you don't have to go and be writing like a $100,000 check yourself. You can just put in 1,000, 5,000, 10,000. I mean, you can go more if you want, obviously. Um, but that's that's the kind of high level idea. And then the other thing is where it's funny because a couple of years ago it was kind of annoying that you would see some of these kind of shitcoin fund manager people who would be there and they'd be charging ridiculous amounts of money. Some of these guys are taking two and twenty or three and thirty, right? As in two percent of the asset under management and twenty percent performance fee or, or more in some cases, uh, just for investing in random coins and random coin companies and things like that. Whereas with Bitcoin Adventures, it's myself, it's Corey Clipston of Swan Bitcoin and Jan Pritzker also of Swan Bitcoin and Louis Liu. And we are taking zero carry, zero fees. So it's like no fees to us. It's literally, it's it's about the money, right? That's what we joke about. It's about the money as in it's about making Bitcoin. It's about turning Bitcoin into money, right? And so that's that's the way... I'm thinking of this stuff and it's about thinking about what businesses can we invest into that align with our vision. And we are also looking at, we haven't kind of nailed down exactly how we're going to do this, but we are looking at ways to also contribute for open source developers as well. So the idea is potentially if like I've actually had some listeners come to me in the past and say, Hey, I'd like to um, contribute towards like open source development can you kind of help me recommend who who to go to that kind of thing so we might potentially also be one focal point there as well that people can sort of come to us if they know know if they know of us from the bitcoin space and then they kind of trust like our our judgment or our uh kind of taste in terms of what we want to contribute to and they want they want our help to kind of be a matchmaker that that may be a role that we also play as well um, but for now, the main the main aspect is the investment syndicate part, um, and so yeah, and obviously the other part is we believe there is a benefit to the investor as well. Like you are, we you know, hopefully, obviously there's risk with all these things, but hopefully you'll make a return out of that. And when you uh, invest in that company, you're, you're going to you know uh, be exposed to the upside potential for those companies also. So that. Um, is something else to bear in mind if you're considering joining uh, the Bitcoin Adventures syndicate, which is, uh, so the website for that, for the listeners, is bitcoinadventures.com. It's very cool. I've checked it out. I've joined on AngelList. I'm I'm watching very, very closely what's coming through because, yeah, it's one thing to stack sats, but if you want to be part of the um, the wider community and 
and just hedge, just hedge a little bit of your exposure, right? Um, I think it, also it could be just really exciting to be part of one of these companies that um, are going to take off. So, um, and a big shout out to Angelist, um, you know, founder uh, Naval Ravikant, who um, many people were unlocked by him and Nick Zabo on Tim Ferriss's podcast. Um, so there's a nice interlink there. Uh, very, very, very cool. And um, yeah, Naval being a you know, into Bitcoin himself. Absolutely. Yeah. Naval um, has, uh, has some really interesting takes. Obviously I haven't, ag- I don't agree with everything he's on about, but I, I think um, he's definitely done a lot to bring people in and bring awareness around Bitcoin. Uh, so yeah, definitely. And the Angelist platform is quite a well-known one for this kind of thing as well. So it's quite, uh, quite a good platform, um, you know, from what I know of it. Right. Last couple of questions because I know you got to um, I know you got to run off pretty soon. Um, now I was going to ask you who would be your moonshot guest to come onto the podcast. Oh. And you've already had so many, so this could be a <laughs> difficult one. This could be a really difficult one for you. So I'll leave you. Oh. I'll, I'll, I'll let you pause. Well, I mean, obviously, I would love to get Nick Zabo on the show. Um, who else? Hunter and Hopper. I would love to get him on the show. Big fan. Um, uh, I don't know. Yeah, or maybe like some of these like really off the wall celebrity people, like I don't know, like Kanye West or someone like you know someone like that who might you know who might really uh, go hard. Um, yeah, I think like honestly for me, like I I sense that like I've like for me it's just more about like different topics that I think are interesting for the listener and you know so for me. Um, you know, big guests obviously are cool as well, um, but I, I guess you can sort of see even from like the guests on my show, they're not necessarily always like big name, like huge name people. Um, for me, it's 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 just about like what what do I think is educational um, for the listener, and so yeah. But yeah, I guess yeah, someone like Hans Hermann Hopper or Nick Zabo from the obviously from the Bitcoin world would be you know phenomenal as a guest. Um, yeah, they're probably the they're probably the main ones that come to my mind. Cool. And then um, one question I usually end on, um, I think you've already kind of answered it. It's kind of the same question. If there was one person that you could implant your knowledge of Austrian economics and Bitcoin into, so that they could go and then share that knowledge with their audience, who would that person be and why? Oh, good question. Maybe like some of the, maybe someone within like the kind of Austrian, maybe someone within the libertarian world, right? Because I, I would like, I would rather they be the early Bitcoin people, right? Uh, so, you know, someone like Tom Woods, right? Like, although I know Tom Woods is already like, he already talks about Bitcoin a little bit, but I think someone like that, it would be, you know, really good to get like his, like Tom Wood and Tom Woods and his audience, like really more into Bitcoin, like, you and me and some of uh, like us bitcoin like hardcore bitcoin people because i think it, it it doesn't take a massive number of people all stacking sats to like start causing especially once after the halving only a small number of people stacking would really drive huge changes in you know overall kind of bitcoin or adoption aspects Nice answer. Nice answer. That's not one we've had before. We've had Kanye before, who you mentioned. I thought you might just uh, go straight to that. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing, right? It's like quality over quantity, right? It's like you want you want the people who kind of align with your worldview a little bit more. And I think those are the people who you want in first. 
if we want this to be a game changer, yeah, I, I, I get your point 100%. We don't want more of the same, right? We want change. Yeah, exactly. So if like the mainstream politicians are like the guys that start stacking sats and, you know, they end up in, you know, uh, which we all believe in this space, um, a very um, wealthy position 10 years down the line and the policies and everything are all still the same, we've not changed the game. Right. Yeah. And so for me, that's always been the, I think that's been the focus as well. And that's why for me, it's kind of like, we have to be careful, like this idea of quote unquote mass adoption, it could in some ways be a poison pill. And we've got to really make sure we stay strong about certain values and, you know, self custody and things like that, that we keep it strong um, and keep that culture strong so that uh, people uh, sort of come into the right ethos and that the actual end result is better for for all of us. So, yeah. So I think it is a it is a quality over quantity thing there. And creating stickiness. Let's let's hope that um, you know this time around, if we have this big shoot up, which people are anticipating, that's going to draw more people in. That a bigger percentage of those people stick around this time. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's always some percentage, right? So I guess you can't always, um, you know. Yeah, there'll there'll always be some percentage who got wrecked and then stick around and then learn, right? And who knows? I mean, whoever knows whatever the next peak is, then maybe the next crash is to like thirty thousand or something. And then, and then you know, Peter Schiff and Nouriel Rabini will come out and say, "Oh, look, see, I told you guys it was a crash <laughs> down to thirty thousand, right, or whatever." Right. <laughs> so that's gonna be that's gonna be the narrative in a couple of years' time. So uh, watch out for it. You heard it here first, eh? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Stefan, is there anything you want to leave the uh, the listeners with? Any uh, final and uh, parting thoughts or advice? Yes, I would just say, look, everyone's got to work on themselves. This is a continual self-improvement journey in terms of learning to better yourself and better your security, your Bitcoin security, and also work on some of your privacy components. Like just start taking those steps and also just think about ways to make it easy for your new coiner friends to come in. Now, it's again, remember the Matadell shill lightly idea, right? Like don't be overbearing about it, but be, be ready when they come to you and have a plan in terms of, okay, here's your next step. Okay, read this book. Okay, install this wallet. Okay, buy a hardware wallet. Set up on this exchange, like one at a time. Okay, you've done this, now do that. And think about how you're going to do that for them without overwhelming them. I think that's a common tendency amongst Bitcoiners is because we just want to like hit them with 10 different links and articles. And it's like, no, just one thing, do this thing, then next. You know, so I would think of it like that. Um, so yeah, and uh, just for your listeners who want to find me, stefanlevera.com and ministryofnerds.com.au and then bitcoinadventures.com are the resources for people who want to find uh, the respective things excellent stefan thanks so much for your time thanks very much for having me daniel take care man hey guys thank you for listening and thanks to uh stefan again for all of um the time he gave up to to sit down and talk with me on uh, on this podcast again i'm just getting blown away by the amount of people that are so open to to coming on the show um supporting the show helping helping build this thing um but it is obviously a common running theme within the space that those people that are committed to to trying to spread the education and build companies are um you know that they're, they're all pushing in the right direction and they you know they're committed to this thing and it's um you know it's not it's not a hassle for them 
necessarily to come on a come on a podcast and, and share their ideas and share their thoughts and, and try and spread the message as far as they can. Um, you know, drip by drip, um, we're, we're all trying to um, do our little bit here. And um, you know, thank you to uh, to all of you listening and, and being part of uh, part of it in your own way and um, sharing out the podcast episodes, whether it's mine or anybody else's. Uh, and tweeting them around or um, emailing them to your friends, you know, everything is just, um, it, it might seem as though it's nothing, but it's going to resonate with someone. So thank you uh, for, all, uh, for all of you guys for doing that. Um, really interesting uh, to get inside uh, Stefan's head there, talking about um, Austrian economics at the, uh, at the beginning, um, what's going on in, on, uh, on in Australia right now. Um, and Bitcoin Adventures, Bitcoin Adventures sounds really, really interesting. Um, like I said, I've checked it out on AngelList. I've joined up and um, I'm following what they're doing. I think it'd be a very cool thing if you're um, interested in investing in companies. Um, obviously, I think anybody would probably recommend, you know, concentrate on stacking sats first. But if you are interested on in investing companies, this is probably, you know, a very low barrier to entry and uh, a good way to, to get involved and start. So I would urge you to go and check that out. Um, yep. Yeah, thanks again to everybody and uh, Stefan for, for sharing his time again. Hope you have uh, a great day or evening wherever you are. Thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, look forward to the next show. Take care. Bye-bye.